The last investigator I met with was Dr. Ian Smith, and to begin, he presented a patient from his practice. So this was a 64-year-old lady who, two and a half years ago, had a 33-millimeter right breast cancer. The core showed a grade 2 invasive ductal, and this was ER positive, progesterone receptor moderately positive, HER2 was negative, and the right axilla was involved by fine needle aspirate cytology. So she had something palpable in the axilla? No, no. She had ultrasound-guided aspirate. Hmm. And her other staging, her CT scan and her bone scan, was clear. So again, we elected to treat her with chemotherapy on the basis of her nodal status and the fact that it was a 33-millimeter cancer. But I think now we would have done an oncotype DX if it had been available, but my recollection is that her IHC4 was high enough to put her in a prognostic category where we justified the chemotherapy. So she had fairly standard anthracycline followed by taxane chemotherapy. She had a good response clinically. She had a good response on imaging. But when she came to have her wide local excision, there was still 41 millimeter grade 2 invasive ductal carcinoma. She had what our pathologists described as low cellularity, suggesting a tumor response. We don't currently use a scoring for the degree of pathological response, but I'm beginning to think that we should. You know, the work from MD Anderson suggests that a gradation is a good thing to do, and we're looking at that, but for the time being, we don't. And I see, too, that she had two positive sentinel nodes. If the sentinel nodes had been negative, would you have then obviously not done the axillary dissection? Yes. The sentinel nodes had only got micrometastases, and we wouldn't normally do an axillary resection on the basis of micrometastases. That's in de novo. But the concern here was that she had involvement before treatment. We knew that cytologically. And the assumption was that perhaps there was quite a lot of disease in the nodes before she had the chemotherapy. So that's the reason she had an axillary resection. So this lady certainly doesn't sound like she had the kind of response you see with HER2 positive, triple negative disease. No, no. This was more of an ER positive, HER2 negative response that was... Right. Not too impressive. She had a response, but not particularly impressive. No. So then post-op, then she gets radiotherapy. Radiotherapy, and and she gets letrozole. Now, the thing is, we would normally give radiotherapy to the supraclavicular fossa in patients who have involved axillary nodes. Not everyone in the UK does that, but the judgment of our clinical oncologists, our radiation oncologists, is that based on the risk of recurrence in the supraclavicular fossa, that's what they would do, And we didn't do that here because all she had were micrometastases. So that was the judgment. Anyway, it's easy to be wise in hindsight, but two years later, very recently, she's presented with a solid right supraclavicular node recurrence. And the core biopsy shows that she had a poorly differentiated carcinoma with the estrogen receptor only three out of eight, very low estrogen expression, Progesterone receptor negative, HER2 receptor negative. So she's not far off being triple negative now. The CT scan showed no evidence of disease elsewhere. And we discussed what we would do here, and we've come up with the strategy 
of using chemotherapy that she hasn't had already, using capecitabine, to see if we can get tumour reduction, and then she's going to have local radiotherapy. I'm not completely optimistic about the capecitabine because she had 5-FU a mere two and a half years ago, and the drugs are very, very similar. But anyway, that's the policy. So I would imagine that in your discussion with her, she would have been interested in your thoughts about the potential curability in this situation. Do you think she is curable? I've seen patients cured presenting with supraclavicular nodal disease. In terms of this kind of focal recurrence with ER negative, I must say I'd be pessimistic. But it's a solitary lesion, and we're into the realms of oligometastasis now. There's two other issues here. This nodule is very superficial and mobile, and I've actually sent a message to the surgeon to say, I want to discuss with the surgeon, is there actually an argument for just removing it surgically? Normally, we wouldn't do this. You don't want to do full supraclavicular nodal section, but it's so isolated, and maybe this is just pie in the sky, but it would certainly put her into a short-term complete remission. And I can't say whether that's right or wrong, and I'm waiting with interest to see what my own surgeon says, and I guess surgeons around the world, if you polled them, some would say, yeah, why not do it? And others would say, no, there's no point doing it. But I would emphasize it's only because this is a very superficial and very mobile node. And then the other issue, of course, is cyber knife type radiotherapy, which we're just exploring just now. And and that might just be an issue here because the idea of cyber knife in breast cancer would be with oligometastasis, hoping to get complete long-term local control. I guess maybe you could also think about just leaving the node in there for a little bit as a marker to your systemic therapy and then take it out or irradiate it. This lady also exemplifies a not uncommon situation where you see a discrepancy in ER, and this occurs with her too, between a primary and a recurrence. What's your general thought process when you look at these patients? It can go both ways, but it seems like maybe more common to see what happened here. You start out with ER positive and then it becomes pretty much ER negative. I think it's heterogeneity and genetic instability. We did a study, and others have done this, looking at the core and the excision biopsy. And generally speaking, there was excellent concordance except for progesterone receptor, which is perhaps not so crucial for planning treatments. And the way I think of this is that this lady had some low estrogen receptor tumor cells right from the start, and these are the ones that have metastasized, and the letrozoles kind of allowed them to come through and control the ER-positive cells. Interesting. So I wouldn't necessarily stop her letrozole, precisely for that reason. Let's go on and talk about your 56-year-old lady. It sounds like actually that's going to be a good case to follow up some of the things we've already talked about. This is a difficult lady I'm going to talk about, but I think surgeons and oncologists listening will identify with this problem. So this is a 56-year-old postmenopausal lady who presented with a fairly large mass, four by four centimetres, clinically on ultrasound, the MRI scan. We did an MRI scan because the core biopsy showed this was an invasive lobular carcinoma. 
We don't routine do MRI scans for breast, but we do with invasive lobular because of the difficulty of defining them with standard imaging. And the MRI scan showed this was a 5 centimeter mass with foci extending to 7 centimeters. And her axilla was normal. And the core biopsy showed a grade 2 invasive lobular carcinoma. It was strongly ER positive, it was strongly PGR positive, and it was HER2 negative. And the key 67 was 10%, so fairly low. Now, she was very clear. She didn't want a mastectomy, and she was very keen to avoid chemotherapy. Let me ask you how large her breasts were. And no, she had quite large breasts. There was the possibility of doing conservative surgery anyway, but with an MRI scan suggesting the tumour could have been up to 7 centimetres and invasive lobular, the feeling of our surgeons were that it would be unlikely to get clear margins. So we did an Oncotype DX. We've discussed this earlier. And the Oncotype DX gave a recurrence score of 17 with a risk of distant recurrence 10%. So she was lower risk. And it's interesting because this, despite being a large cancer, genetically, by her genomic analysis, it was low risk. Also, you know, just kind of going beyond risk, when I see low Oncotype, I think high endocrine, yeah. high ER, so, yeah. high endocrine sensitivity. Yeah. When I see a high recurrent score, I think chemo sensitivity, not as much endocrine. And here you have a lady who really needs to have a response. So based on all these factors, not just well, her wishes, obviously a paramite in a way, but I was reassured by the low oncotype. So we started her on neoadjuvant letrozole. And shortly after that, we repeated her biopsy for key 67 and by now, this was very low, at less than 1%. Now, the reason we did this is based on our own research from a trial that we call the IMPACT trial. And that suggested that the key 67 after you start treatment is a much better prognostic indicator, predictive for outcome, than the key 67 before treatment. And we found that very, very few people with a low key 67 after treatment, really low, have relapsed. Now, we're validating that trial in a much bigger trial called Poetic that we might discuss later. But based on our preliminary data, that gave me further reassurance that we should stick with endocrine therapy and not switch to chemotherapy. I'll tell you, there's a psychological problem comes in here because after four months, she only had a pretty small response clinically, although there was a marked improvement in the MRI scan. She was beginning to get twitchy and she said, look, my neighbour up the road had breast cancer last week and she's already had a mastectomy and here am I four months later. And it illustrates one of the problems of neoadjuvant endocrine therapy is that unlike with chemotherapy the response can be very slow and the patient can start to get twitchy and frankly, the doctor can start to get twitchy. It's not really like the elderly ladies in the late 70s where neoadjuvant endocrine therapy just makes the cancer melt away and everyone's relaxed. It can be a slow business. So anyway, after four months, she said she'd had enough waiting and so she went to surgery and she had a wide local excision, and she had a node biopsy, and it confirmed all the histology. 
It confirmed that she still had a very low key 67, but the margins were positive. Didn't completely surprise us that because of the issue of the invasive lobulate. So she then went on to have a mastectomy and a Dieppe flap reconstruction. And at that point, we're still faced with the decision, did she need chemotherapy? Because, you know, she had a still residual big cancer. It was still 40 millimetres pathologically. But based on the original oncotype and based on our follow-up key 67, we stuck to our guns and said she didn't need to have chemotherapy. And so she's remained on letrozole. And touch wood, so far, three years later, she's doing well. And she hasn't recurred. But it was a tricky one. And all the time we're just thinking, are we getting this right? Or It's very easy just to kind of say, let's give her chemotherapy because that's what most people would do for a large cancer. But I think she illustrates that if you've got the molecular backup oncotype and key 67, you need to have faith in what the science is telling us. And that's why we carried on with Letrozole alone. You mentioned the fact that she got impatient and wanted to do something after four months. When you use neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, typically how long does it take you to sort of plateau out in terms of response? Yeah, that's the other point. There are data from a big British trial, not a trial, it was an observational trial, it wasn't randomized, and that showed that patients by and large continued to respond for at least a year with steady further aggression each time it was tested. And very, very few people who were responding relapsed within that year. And I think the answer is you can't put a time limit because everyone's different, but I would say if the patient's responding to neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, you continue until you've reached a stage when the surgeon is confident that he can do conservative surgery, if that's what the lady wants. If the lady doesn't want it, then there's no need to hang around. But you need to kind of hold your nerve, because that could be six, nine months a year, and you need to assess the lady all the time. And as I said earlier, the patient themselves can become edgy about it. And for certain, myself and my surgical colleagues who see these ladies together get edgy about it as well. But I think the answer is you have to hang in and monitor carefully. Perhaps if we'd kept going for eight months or even 12 months rather than four, she might have had a better response. So one final thought about this case. You were talking about the dilemma post-op. You didn't really want to give her chemo because you knew she had a low recurrence score. She had infiltrating lobular. Maybe not that excited about keeping the hormone therapy going because it didn't seem like it caused that spectacular response. You think a few years from now in patients like this, we might be using hormonal therapy with something else. And in metastatic disease now, first we had seen benefits from mTOR inhibitors, for example, Everolimus. More recently, we've seen even more exciting data, I think, with so-called CDK inhibitors. You think a patient like this maybe would be treated with post-op with, say, not just letrozole, but letrozole and a drug like palbociclib? Yeah. Well, I think the answer is it's extremely likely we will. We have just started a trial, in fact, working closely with our American colleagues with the NSABP team, which is called PALET, and that's a neoadjuvant trial of letrozole alone versus letrozole plus palbociclib. 
and it's a fairly short-term trial with molecular endpoints, but it's, it's addressing exactly that question. And when you extrapolate from the metastatic data, if the metastatic data hold up, no reason to believe they wouldn't, because they're pretty spectacular, I think, then I think it's very likely that in a few years' time, women like this will be getting letrozole plus palbociclib or some similar targeted therapy. That's an awesome trial. It's the first I've heard about it, and it seems like the clinical data will be fascinating, but also the translational data. Yeah, exactly. Everything we do in breast cancer, we overtreat, but we don't know who are the ones that really need the extra treatment. And to have a test that says this lady's going to do fine on letrozole alone, but this patient is going to need letrozole plus palbociclib, that's the aim. So why don't we finish out talking about your 36-year-old lady? Oh, Yes. This raises all sorts of issues. This was a 36-year-old woman, and she discovered, self-discovered, a right-sided breast cancer that was five centimeters, a big cancer. A very smart woman, and it had obviously grown quickly because she wouldn't have missed something for a while. And the core biopsy showed it was grade three. There was auxiliary involvement on cytology, and the receptors were estrogen receptor negative, but it was strongly HER2 positive. So we treated her with neoadjuvant chemotherapy using anthracyclines initially, and then weekly paclitaxel, and we used trastuzumab, but we also used pertuzumab. And what was interesting about this lady for me is she was the first lady at the Marsden that we'd used neoadjuvant pertuzumab, and it was based on the Neosphere trial, the results of which had just recently come out. And the FDA had allowed uniquely, first time they've done this, a fast tracking of pertuzumab in neoadjuvant treatment. And that was based on the Neosphere trial, which I won't go into all the details of that, but it basically showed that if you add pertuzumab to standard trastuzumab with chemotherapy, you almost double the pathological complete remission rate. And since pathological complete remission predicts for outcome, it was a hypothesis that this would therefore predict for long-term outcome. Yeah, actually, when I saw this case and I saw it was neoadjuvant therapy HER2 positive, the first thing that struck me was that it was in September 2013. That was exactly when the FDA in the United States approved it neoadjuvantly, so that affected your thinking. Yeah. And we got lucky because this was approved for use by us on the basis of the neoadjuvant data and on the basis of the FDA license. Incidentally, pertuzumab has recently been granted a similar license in Europe, but only very recently. So we were ahead of the time. So what happens with this lady is she has a fantastic response. The tumor just melted away. And when it came to surgery she was in complete remission, complete pathological remission. We talked earlier about not jumping in to do an auxiliary resection if the nodes are cytologically positive initially, and I'm very glad we didn't because she had a complete remission in her nodes as well. So the first hospital she went to had told her that she needed to have a mastectomy and auxiliary resection, and here we were a few months later with only fairly limited surgery and complete remission in the nodes. So she had radiotherapy after that and tamoxifen. We continued trastuzumab and pertuzumab for a year. Now, the second bit of that 
is an area of controversy because the Neosphere trial only used pertuzumab preoptively. And the license for pertuzumab is only for preoptive treatment, in other words, 12 weeks. My instinct was that if pertuzumab was good for 12 weeks, it might be even better for a year, and there's no major toxicities that we're aware of with this treatment. And since we were allowed to carry on, we did. But that second half is non-evidence-based. There's a large trial called the Affinity Trial that's assessing the benefit of a year of pertuzumab. It's interesting, in that survey that you participated in, we asked people whether they use pertuzumab outside a trial setting in the post-op setting. It was exactly 50-50. Half the people did and half done. So as you said, it's very controversial. I think the argument against is that we're supposed to practice evidence-based medicine, and the evidence so far only supports preoptive treatment. And that's a valid argument. But the argument for... It's quite likely that going on for longer would be better. We know that longer duration trastuzumab is better than short duration. We know there's very little downside. So my argument was, there's a woman with her entire life ahead of her. I don't want to make it too emotional, but that was the fact. And here's a treatment that was probably going to be of benefit if we continued it with very little risk of bad long-term side effects. So that's why we did it. But you can argue both ways. I don't know if I ever told you, but we did a survey of both investigators and oncologists in practice in September 2005, three months before the adjuvant trastuzumab data came out. Of course, we didn't know it at the time. And we said, what would you do with a patient who has three positive nodes, SR2 positive disease? And nobody was using trastuzumab. And of course, we did the same survey that summer, and everybody was. So. Yeah. I don't know whether partly going through that, a lot of people went through that experience and maybe that's affecting how people look at it now. Well, you see, it's not just, of course, the neoadjuvant data from Neosphere. You've got these extraordinary good results from the what we call the Cleopatra trial in metastatic breast cancer. And in a nutshell, that shows for metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer, previously untreated, the addition of pertuzumab to trastuzumab virtually doubles the benefit that you get from trastuzumab alone. And then you extrapolate to the neoadjuvant, it virtually doubles the PATHCR rate. So it's a pretty fair bet that giving this treatment longer-term adjuvant therapy is likely to have a further benefit. That's the way I would argue you know, and there also have been the question of, does neoadjuvant therapy influence long-term disease-free and overall survival? And we've always had this concept that it doesn't, that it's the same as giving it post-op, so we don't know. And then is this benefit of adding in the second monoclonal antibody going to make a difference in the long-term? And I'm curious what you think about, because I haven't heard too much discussion at the ASCO meeting in June, there was the five-year follow-up of the neoadjuvant study, the Neosphere study that you talked about. And tucked in that data set, I think it was about like only around 200 patients, so it wasn't actually statistically significant. But these people had only gotten neoadjuvant pertuzumab, and in fact, the long-term disease-free survival was better. I think the hazard rate was like 0.69. What did you think about that? I think these data were very persuasive. 
The numbers were small, so the absolute and the follow-up time is quite short. But the hazard ratio, as you say, it's about 0.6 or so, it was a really big effect statistically. And if you extrapolate that to many thousands of patients with longer-term follow-up, then it's going to be of tremendous additional benefit. It's all these, you might say, circumstantial evidence, but they're all pointing exactly the same direction that says that an early breast cancer pertuzumab is going to have a very significant further survival benefit and it's likely that more than three months is going to be better. Well, there's a caveat. It's very expensive. And combined trastuzumab, pertuzumab is a problem with all these targeted therapies. And the results from trastuzumab alone with chemotherapy are already very good. In our trial, the HERA trial, all the American trials, they're excellent results. So it's really only a minority, we're back to the old story of overtreating, it's really only a minority are going to gain from the pertuzumab. And the clever thing is to work out who that minority would be. And again, that's going to come back to molecular markers. So one final question. This case, actually, it sounds sort of miraculous. You know, this big tumor completely goes away, but it actually is almost predictable. You would not be surprised that to see something like this happen nowadays in HER2-positive disease. My question relates to the effect of ER in this. Now, this lady was ER-positive, HER2-positive. What do we know about the effect of ER in terms of PATH-CR in HER2-positive disease? Well, as a medical oncologist, this is an area where I prefer to see ER-negative positive, because the pathological complete remission rates are significantly higher and the long-term benefits are probably better with ER negative patients. So that's a little less, that's a little more controversial. The benefit, the long-term benefit in the near sphere study we've been talking about with combined trastuzumab and pertuzumab are clearly a lot better in ER negative than in ER-positive patients. So if you want to get good PATH-CR rates, then the best thing you look for is ER-negative, HER2-positive. But there's a funny thing about PATH-CRs because you just don't get them so much in ER-positive breast cancer of any sort. And yet ER-positive overall does better than ER-negative, so you've got to keep it all in perspective. I think PATH-CR is a very important endpoint for HER2-positive breast cancer and for triple negative. But it's not a big deal for other types of ER-positive breast cancer. And, of course, you hardly ever get it with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, and yet that's effective treatment. 